Welcome to those tuning into the Climate Assessment for the Southwest new podcast series, 1075, Shortage on the Colorado River. 1075 refers to the elevation of Lake Mead and feet above sea level that serves as a trigger for reduced water allocations. And according to the latest projections from the Bureau of Reclamation, Lake Mead could fall below 1075 as soon as June 2015. I'm Zach Guido, CLEMA staff scientist, and I'll be the host for this series along with my colleague Ryan Thomas and we'll explore what the first ever shortage declaration on the Colorado River could mean for water management in the Southwest. We'll explore both the opportunities and consequences of a shortage and construct a nuanced view of a complex issue. In this first episode of the series, we'll take a broad view of the Colorado River Basin, exploring how the river is managed, who uses the water, and what a potential shortage could mean for the entire system. Ryan and I will explore this topic with Doug Kenny, who is Director of Western Water Policy Program at the University of Colorado School of Law. Okay, well, why don't we just start it off and, and start at the basics, uh, Doug, and, and how about uh, provide us with, uh, with the context of the Colorado River Basin? I mean, the Colorado is a, is a big basin, I and mean, it's an important basin. Um, it covers um, parts of seven southwestern states. Um, it covers almost all of Arizona and a small amount of Mexico and roughly two dozen Indian reservations. So it's a, it's a big, physically it's a big area, um, and it's a long river, well over a thousand miles, um, closer to 1,500 miles. Um, but it's not a very big river in terms of flow. It's not in the top 20 in the U.S. in terms of flow, but it goes through such an arid region it's critically important. It, it's at least part of the water supply for roughly 40 million people. Um, it's an important irrigation water source for about 5.5 million acres of irrigation. Um, it's very important source of hydropower for the region, um, well over 4,000 megawatts of hydropower generated each year, primarily at Hoover Dam and Glen Canyon Dam. It's a very wild area, a lot of a lot of recreation opportunities, 11 national parks. Um, so it's a big and important basin for, for water supply purposes, for hydropower purposes, for recreation and environmental purposes. Uh, has a lot of cultural values. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. There's a reason that people argue about the Colorado River. It's a, it's a big deal. So we tend to split it up. I mean, you often hear the upper va basin versus the lower basin. Can you talk a little bit about why there's that distinction? The distinction between upper and lower basin is both the legal distinction and it's also a physical distinction. Um, the, the upper basin is those parts of Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico that drain into the river was where the lower basin is, uh, those parts of Arizona, Nevada, and California that drain into the basin, and and those are very different basins from a from a physical sense. And that the upper basin is mountainous and sparsely populated, and it's where the vast majority of the of the water actually comes from. It's mostly from snowmelt from the Rocky Mountains, whereas the lower basin is is hotter and flatter and drier and with larger population centers. So there is this. So there is some logic to thinking of, some physical logic to thinking about two basins, um, and that physical logic really translates to translated to how the basin was allocated through the Colorado River Compact, which 
made a, a, a allocation of water to the upper basin and to the lower basin. So they actually um, introduced this idea of, of two sub-basins within the Colorado. And so we're going all the way back to 1922 for the Colorado River Compact. Is that when this the, the Colorado River sort of began its its incarnation of management that we have now? The 1922 Colorado River Compact is considered the the starting point for the evolution of the law of the river. And the law of the river is just this phrase given to describe all the laws and policies and that that exist to describe how the waters can be allocated among the seven states in Mexico. Um, I mean, it would be it'd be false to suggest that nothing was happening before 1922. Um, some of the large agricultural districts in Arizona and California, particularly, had had been established prior to 1922, and there had been some attempts at large diversions be before 1922. So a lot of things had begun to happen before 1922. But the compact in 1922 really got things rolling. And one of the important things that, that it did is is it paved the way for building of Hoover Dam about a decade later. And once Hoover Dam got built, then a lot of the, the diversions and a lot of the infrastructure of water management in the lower basin really took off. Um, so, so 1922 is an important year and the compact is a critically important part of the management of the river um, but you know there are a few things that happened before then so you mentioned the the law of the river which uh it's always a a phrase that kind of makes my eyes circle a little bit is there any way to to uh this this what, what do people mean by that and like what what, what are what are the details the, the important details of it different people would will, will give you different answers to to what is included within the law of the river, but normally, it's the it's the main acts of law that describe the allocation. So we'll start with the 1922 compact. Um, that is critically important. That's what divided water essentially between an upper basin and the lower basin. There's the 1928 Boulder Canyon Project Act, which was provided the congressional ratification of the compact. Um, but it also authorized the construction of Boulder Dam, which was later renamed as Hoover Dam. So that was critically important. That act also allocated the lower basin share of water between Arizona, California, and Nevada. So that was critically important. Um, you move on a couple decades to the 40s. That in 1944, you had the treaty between the U.S. and Mexico um, that, that was important. Um, and then after that, you get a few other items that, that maybe aren't quite as centrally important but are collectively very important. You get a, there's a compact among the upper basin states that allocate the upper basin share among the four upper basin states. You get some of the, some more water development authorizations from Congress for structures such as Glen Canyon Dam and the formation of Lake Powell. Um, you get an important lawsuit, Arizona v. California which was decided in 1963 that, that clarified some of the elements of law up to that point that had been in, in some dispute, um, mainly about allocation of water between, between the lower basin states. Um, and you get a few other things thrown in there um, that are important. There's certainly a lot of tribal water settlements, for example, that have happened over the years. Um, there are some environmental legislation that you saw primarily starting in the 
the 70s and well late 60s and, and early 70s um, that all affects the river and then you get some of these incremental changes like like a little adjustments known as minutes to the treaty between the United States and Mexico um, and more recently you get agreements such as the interim guidelines which were something enacted in 2007 which provides some detail as to how the water is moved back and forth between Lake Powell and Lake Mead um, and that's those rules are are pretty critically important at the moment since the storage in those reservoirs is so low so there needed to be a little more detail about when water is going to be released and when it's going to be stored and and, and how that affects the other elements of law and management and so that all that together and many elements that I could have also thrown in is considered the law of the river. So, so the law of the river as a whole is is a pretty complicated and evolving body of law. And certainly, a person could specialize their whole career in, in learning the nuances of the law of the river. And uh, but it, most of it, most people consider the compact of 1922 is 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 the core element. And everything else that's happened is is a refinement of, of, the, of that initial agreement. So can you give us a sense of currently how the water is allocated, particularly among the lower basin states? How much water uh, does California get, does Arizona get? The lower basin states share 7.5 million acre feet per year from the main stem of the Colorado. Um, you know, acre feet is a term some people are familiar with and some people aren't. It's kind of a very Western U.S. specific term, but if you can picture an acre of land flooded to a foot, that's an acre foot. Um, you know, and so the lower basin states have this 7.5 million acre feet portionment from the main stem that they share, um, but it's not a certainly not an equal shares. Most of that goes to California. 4.4 million acre feet go to California. After that, 2.8 million acre feet go to Arizona, and 300,000 acre feet go to Nevada. And the thing that jumps out at most people when they first see this is, is is the very small amount that goes to Nevada compared to Arizona and California. And that just reflects that back in 1922 when the water was being allocated, um, the folks in Nevada could had a really hard time finding any scenario under which Nevada would need that water. Um, but the, this is one of the great stories of the Southwest. This is before Las Vegas was anything more than a speck on a map, you know. And, and no, one, no one could envision the city of Las Vegas growing out of out of the desert, or as it has. And so, Nevada's apportionment looks very, very small, and, and to many people's eyes, inappropriately small in this day and age, compared to 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 their needs. But uh, but nonetheless, that is how the water was allocated between those three states. Um, it gets a little more complicated in that the allocation I just described is water from the main stem, which basically means water that, that comes out of Lake Mead. Um, the water that in the tributaries downstream of Lake Mead, such as the Gila River, that water pretty much belongs to, just belongs to the state where the tributary exists. So, so the Gila River, water from the Gila is in addition to is in addition to Arizona's 2.8 million acre feet apportionment, they can use as much as they want from the Gila and a few other smaller rivers like the Bill Williams. Now I'm guessing that every state uh, that draws water from the Colorado is clamoring for 
more water, even though they, they may not be able to. Um, is, is that the case? Are, are, for example, is uh, Nevada um, trying to, to, to get more water, or are they locked in the place of that 300,000 acre feet? There's kind of two parts to that question. The first part is that everyone wants as much water as they were promised in the compact and the other elements of the law of the river. Um, but the problem is that the law of the well, the compact was negotiated in an unusually wet period, and so it allocated more water than actually exists. And when you start looking at the climate change impacts on the basin, um, the amount of water that currently exists is actually going to drop further. And so there's this problem that, that people feel they were promised a certain amount of water, but they're just not going to get it. And, and so that's the first problem, and that's the problem that the states upstream in the upper basin really really have with the law of the rivers. They, they feel they're never going to get as much water as they felt they were promised. Um, downstream, the issue is a little different. Downstream, you talked about Nevada and, and specifically the 300,000 acre feet that Nevada has, and, and that's really, for all practical purposes, we can just say Las Vegas instead of Nevada because that's where all the water goes. Um, Las Vegas would clearly like to have more water than 300,000 acre feet. Um, but they know there's no, no real possibility of simply renegotiating the allocation and getting more water. Um, but they are looking at different types of deals and arrangements that, that could potentially be enforced that, that might bring some more, have the practical effect of, of bringing some more water into Las Vegas. Not necessarily formally changing the allocation to Las Vegas, having the effect of making some more water available to Las Vegas. And, and, and exactly what those arrangements will look like is something that's um, under negotiation and it's been under negotiation for years and years. But there are some possibilities of, of various types of marketing arrangements that Las Vegas could enter into with, with other places and other states and other users on the basin that, that might have the effect of providing Las Vegas with a little more than 300,000 acre feet. Um, but, you know, ultimately, that city is trying to figure out how to live with, with what, it was, uh, what it was allocated to 300,000 acre feet. So, Doug, you mentioned the 2007 uh, guidelines a little bit ago. Could you explain that agreement for us and particularly the importance for Arizona? The guidelines were inspired by the observation that is as water levels were dropping in Lake Mead and Lake Powell, it became clear that that somewhere in the future there was going to be a day where there just simply was not enough water in those reservoirs to make the deliveries that, that everyone wanted. And so the question was, you know, there really should be a, a schedule or a, a, a decision made in advance about when lake levels get low what happens in terms of deliveries? Are they are they scaled back, and if they are, by how much, and to whom? And there's a lot of lot that went into those negotiations. Um, the, the the parties, you know, weren't starting with a a clean slate in terms of making those decisions. There were there were other elements of the law of the river that hinted as to who would be cut back and who would not. Um, so you, you take all that that past those past negotiations and, and add on some new negotiations. And the net result are these rules known as the interim guidelines. And the important part of the interim guidelines focus on Lake Mead elevations. And 
Lake Mead is currently about 1,100 feet above sea level. That's the now the the, the lake isn't 1,100 feet deep. Just the the level of the lake is about 1,100 feet above sea level, and and that's how people talk when they talk about Lake Mead. That's how they talk about storage in, in terms of elevation above sea level. And, and as Lake Mead drops, and it's been dropping now in elevation for about the last 14 years, um, as it drops past certain elevation levels, there is now a schedule of curtailment. Uh, the first key threshold is at elevation 1,075 feet, 1075. And at 1075, um, that's when the curtailment stop. And, and the important thing for folks in Arizona to understand is that those curtailments primarily fall upon Arizona and, and upon the users of the Central Arizona Project. When the Central Arizona Project was authorized many years ago, there was language in the authorization that basically said, in the future, if we ever get to the, one of these situations where there's not enough water in Lake Mead, well, then, then the Central Arizona Project is going to bear the brunt of that situation. And sure enough, that's what the interim guidelines say. So at 1075, the amount of water delivered to the Central Arizona project will be cut by 320,000 acre feet per year. Um, that's a lot of water. I mean, that's again, that's more than the entire allocation of the that the state of Nevada gets. Um, it's about one fifth of what the Central Arizona project currently takes. Um, so it's a lot of water, and it's a it's a big curtailment um, as the reservoir drops further. If it drops further, if it drops to 1050, then that number increases further. If it drops all the way to 1025, the number increases further to, to uh, all the way to 480,000 acre feet. And so that schedule of curtailments, when it happens, how big they are, um, that's now been spelled out. Uh, water managers know what the rules are, so they know what to expect if, if and when we hit those levels. Um, so the challenge is now uh, for water managers to say, okay, what are, what are we going to do? How are we going to cope if we get there? Um, and again, that's a, that's a burden that falls mostly on the Central Arizona project. Um, uh, there's some curtailments that happen to, to Las Vegas and some that happen to Mexico as well on that schedule. They're not nearly as big as the ones that happen to the Central Arizona project. Um, but that's the, that's the framework, and this is a framework that is in place through these interim guidelines to the year, 20, to the year 2026. Um, the agreement expires in 2026. Whether it is extended beyond then um, is an open question. I think it'll, we're going to have to see how well those rules and how well those guidelines work between now and then before we know if, if the parties are going to want to extend that, that agreement. But that's the rules of the game as it stands right now. So uh, that's interesting. So it's basically at least the first level of uh, that 1075, it's basically an Arizona issue, if I heard that right. Like California doesn't take yeah. a hit. Ne Nevada may take a slight hit, if I heard that right. Nevada, but... Nevada takes a slight hit. Mexico takes a slight hit. Nevada, California takes no hit of, at all. <laughs> right. They, they take no hit at 1075. They take no hit at 1050. They take no hit at 1025. And, you know, again, that's whether that's fair or not, <laughs> Depends on, on on your perspective, of course, but 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 that's largely a reflection of this deal made many years ago, and it was a deal between Arizona and California regarding 
the efforts to authorize the Central Arizona Project. And when when Arizona went to Congress to get the Central Arizona Project authorized, the state of California was not real excited about that process. <laughs> the state of California said, all that's going to do is, you know, that's just one more straw being poked into the Lake Mead that's just going to draw the reservoir down further. And California wasn't too thrilled about letting that bill make its way through Congress. And so Arizona cut the deal that they felt they had to cut. And that deal was when it's time for shortages, Arizona would take them before California So one of the interesting things that I, that I think about the, the whole Colorado issue is that in building Lakes Mead and, and, and Powell and having a lot of storage capability, that this kind of an issue doesn't creep up on you. And that's reflected in the fact that they put together these 2007 inter, interim guidelines. But I am curious to know if, if once a 1075 happens, and I think it is a question of if and or excuse me, a question of when and, and, and not if, yeah. uh, when it happens, to what extent will this instigate a whole bunch of things that we didn't are, that we didn't think about before? I mean, how much is this thought out ahead of time because we've had time to, to plan for it? And how much of it, well, we'll, we'll just sort of wait and see. Well, again, it's a, it's, there's a matter of perspective here about, about whether the, the states and the federal government are acting quickly enough to deal with this situation. Um, it, you're right. It doesn't. It shouldn't sneak up on anybody. Um, the reservoir levels have been dropping for, you know, pretty much since the turn of the century. They've been dropping. Um, that's about a time. That's the time when a drought hit the region. But it's also about the time where the demands on the system had finally caught up to the supplies. The average demands had caught up to average supplies. And so that happened about the same time the drought started. And so those two things combined have started these the reservoirs on this decline and it's been a very predictable and 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 not particularly surprising I don't think decline that that should prob should that most likely will continue um, so you know I, I one of my colleagues has described this as a freight train standing on the railroad tracks while a freight train bears down at you at two miles an hour you know? <laughs> if, if it hits you it's kind of your own damn fault you know it, it's, it's not a it's not a big surprise, um, but so there are a lot of discussions going on. There are a lot of um, ideas being floated as to as to what can be done to to pre prevent shortages, or if shortages happen, what can be done to cope with them. Um, you know, if if you're a person like myself in the academic community, you say these discussions are going way too slow. It should have started years earlier. Um, if you're a person in the water management community, you say, you know, we're going as fast as we possibly can, and you know, even the simplest of agreement requires a lot of time and pain and suffering, and 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 there's certainly some truth in both perspectives. Um, but this, but there are discussions going on, um, and they will continue. Um, new reforms, new strategies will emerge. I think all that's. All that's clear, um, but it's, I think it's also clear, though, that shortages on the river are inevitable. And and, and it, I think it's important to understand it doesn't. A shortage on the river is not a disaster. If there's a curtailment of water deliveries, it doesn't need to be a disaster. The reality is there's just not as much water as everyone wants. Um, but isn't that always been the case in Arizona and other places of the Southwest? There's never as much as you would ideally want. Um, 
the thing is you just you learn to live with what you have and, and that's the challenge on the Colorado is, is people are just trying to learn to live with with what's available and what's going to be available. What, what does that mean? You know, that means a lot of things. That means using less. Means water conservation. Um, it means, and it might mean some projects that try to find more water. I think it's a practical matter. There's just a lot more opportunity uh, to manage demands and, and to and to pursue conservation strategies than to create new water. Just because it's you know there's not a lot of there's no. Uh, a huge water source sitting nearby that's easy to tap. Um, so I think the future of the of the lower Colorado River is the short-term future is is shortages and curtailments and some yelling and screaming about that and then the longer-term future is the enactment of a lot of conservation programs and some programs that that move some water out of agriculture to the cities and a lot of that will happen incrementally um, it will be a painful process for some people, but in the big scheme of things, it's a very manageable uh, challenge, and, and and that's the future of the river. So you mentioned the first tier of conservation uh, comes at 1075, and that's about 320,000 um, acre feet, mainly felt by Arizona, but some from Nevada. And then there's two other elevation tiers, 1050 and 1025 feet above sea level for the elevation sure. of Lake Mead. Um, what is the uh, water, uh, the change in allocation for, for those levels? If you've, I hope you didn't already say that. At elevation 1075, the Central Arizona project takes a, takes a cut of 320,000 acre feet per year, um, which is a lot of water. It doesn't have a lot of impact though on, on Arizona in that Currently, that's that 320,000 acre feet is roughly the amount of water that the state is using for recharge activities, which simply means taking that water and, and dumping it onto the ground and into the ground in, in parts of Arizona to, to rebuild some aquifers. And some of that water is used just, just for um, deliveries to users that are beyond what they've contracted for or what they're allocated, but to some surplus waters that are made available to users. So uh, that curtailment to Arizona, while it's large, is not, uh, doesn't have a lot of immediate big impact on water users in Arizona. Um, certainly to the extent that those recharge activities are, are, are stopped, that has a long-term significance for the state. But in the short term, it doesn't, doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, as you drop from 1075 to 1050, that number climbs, that curtailment number climbs to 400,000 acre feet. At that point, you're starting to see some actual reductions to irrigated agriculture. Um, nothing extreme. You know, I, I say nothing extreme. I guess this is one of those cases. If, if you're the particular user that's being curtailed, then it is extreme. But from a macro perspective is it's not a huge curtailment it's 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 some belt tightening I, I I describe it as in the agricultural sector um, and then as you drop to 10 to drop to 1025 and of course these curtailments are designed to prevent further drops or at least slow them down but if we just go th continue with the with the assumption that the reservoirs will drop if you get to 1025 the curtailment drops to 480,000 acre feet to the CAP, and again, that's those are curtailments that 
that um, impinge on some agricultural water use. That does not impinge on municipal uses of this, from the CAP, and it does not impinge upon the water allocated to the tribes as part of many of the tribal settlements in Arizona are tied to CAP deliveries. So this is these these numbers of these numbers are pretty big, and they're pretty scary in that respect. Um, but most of the reduction in deliveries is is water that was going to recharge activities. So it doesn't directly affect users. And to the ex extent that current water users of the CAP are curtailed, um, it is limited to agriculture, which um, you know li helps limit the economic impact of of these curtailments. Um, and you know, for, again, from a macro standpoint, um, might not look um, real significant. Um, but if you, of course, if you are the, a particular farmer that's getting cut back, then then it's a significant concern. Yeah. So it's a good point you bring up about it. the impacts really depend on your perspective and and what your priority is on the river as these curtailments start to happen. So so what are the maybe important areas to be looking at. You've mentioned agriculture at the beginning of the episode. You mentioned hydropower. What should we be thinking about as we move into this era of uh, shortage? As meat drops below those thresholds and deliveries to certain users are, are enacted, I mean, that is obviously significant if you are one of those users that is curtailed. Um, if you're one of the users that's not curtailed, and then, then these curtailments are, in many respects, a good thing. You know, it is a the purpose of the curtailment is to reduce the strain on the river and to help give Lake Mead a fighting chance of, of recovery. So in that sense, curtailments to Central Arizona Project are not necessarily viewed as a as a, a problem or a bad thing to, to all parties. Um, as as But as the reservoir levels drop, you know, the, uh, all the other benefits that come with full reservoirs are, are reduced. You know, as reservoir levels drop, you lose some of your your ability to deal with drought. You, you lose you lose some hydropower generation. Um, and at some point, and I can't tell you off the top of my head the exact elevation level, but at some point the reservoirs drop low enough that, that you can't generate hydropower at all. And for a lot of people in the southwest, the hydropower benefits from from Hoover Dam are, are are probably more important to them than the water supply aspect of, of the facility. And so um, the hydropower is a major issue. Um, as, as reservoir levels drop, a lot of the recreation op opportunities from Lake Mead have, uh, if not gone away completely, have at least been reduced. I'm sure you've seen these photos of, of boat, boat of, of docks and, and boat ramps and, and Lake Mead that are now hundreds of feet from the water's edge, you know, the, some of the recreational opportunities um, you lose when, when the water drops. Um, so there's a lot of consequences of declining reservoir levels. Um, water deliveries are the one that, that get the headlines, but there are other concerns as well. Um, but to the extent that curtailments happen, um, that is ultimately, you know, the curtailment is not being enacted for some sort of punitive purpose. You know, it, it's being enacted with the thought that, that that is an action that should help give the reservoir a chance to recover. 
so that's that's kind of the story there. The, the longer term or the bigger issue is the idea that if if Arizona, Nevada, and California all take their full apportionment every year, so if California takes their 4.4 million, and Arizona takes their 2.8 million, and if Nevada takes their 300,000, if that happens every year, the Lake Mead drops significantly. It'll lose at least a million acre feet a year. Just if the states in the, in the lower basin take what they're allocated. And so there is this long-term structural problem that, that, that it's not just a problem associated with the current drought conditions. Um, there is this long-term structural problem that the demands on the river are just higher than, than what is sustainable. So the 1075 is set up to prevent or to uh, reduce um, the, the draining of, of, of Lake Mead for example, it cuts it by 320 feet initially, yep. but it doesn't prevent Nevada and California from taking their full allocation. So under what you just said, in that kind of a scenario, even if you have 1075, um, that reduces uh, what Arizona can can draw off the, the lake, you're still going to get lakes falling under sort of normal um, precipitation. Arizona and Nevada have implemented some deals in recent years such that when Arizona is taking a curtailment, Nevada will take a curtailment as well. And 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 in a subsequent deal, just just about a year old, Mexico is also on board now, so that when Arizona is taking a curtailment, Mexico is also taking a curtailment. So so it's it's of the four big users in downstream of Lake Mead, the, the three states in Mexico, Three of the four take curtailments at these levels that I've, these reservoir levels I've, I've spoken about. Um, but I'm only talking about Arizona in part because that's your audience, but also in part because Arizona by far is taking the largest, the largest hit, the largest cutback. Um, so that's the first thing to clarify. But the second thing to clarify is even, even if we're at 1025, you, you know, even then these curtailments are are very significant um, there's little reason to think that the system is stable even at that level of use um, currently there's a, about this million acre foot imbalance between what the lower basin uses and what on most years flows into Lake Mead I mean there, so it's there is this structural problem as people like to call it of, of demands in the lower basin it's just they're just at a level, even with some of these curtailments, they're just at a level that's not sustainable. And so that's why a lot of folks think that um, curtailments, the schedule of curtailments that I'm talking about to the Central Arizona project, um, that's going to be pretty much the norm going forward. Um, and the question is, is that going to be enough or there's going to be uh, a, a, a more severe norm of curtailments? And that depends on a lot of things. It depends on, certainly depends on longer-term climate trends, which aren't very encouraging. Um, it also depends on whether or not there's any progress made to bring more water into the system. And, uh, you know, people talk about desalination and things like that. I'm not very optimistic about those sort of things. Um, and it also depends upon the extent to which demands in the lower basin can be reduced. You know, a shortage 
isn't a shortage anymore if you find a way to reduce your demand. You know? And so there are opportunities in all the lower, among all the water users in the lower basin, there are opportunities to get more efficient with how we use water, um, and we're going to need to do that, or we're going to be in a situation where there's going to be curtailments. You know, and that's just the reality. And it's it's just a, you know, everything I just talked about is very political and very sensitive. But ultimately, it's just mathematics. You know, the amount of water coming out of Lake Mead just cannot be, over the long term, more than the amount of water going into Lake Mead. And that's the situation where we've been at the last 15 years. The amount of water coming out is consistently more than the amount of water going in. And the only way you can perpetuate a system like that is by drawing down on the reservoir storage and the whole I guess the whole point of this conversation is that we've kind of got to that point where people are no longer comfortable drawing down reservoir storage further we've covered a, a lot of terrain and uh, we probably could spend another hour discussing more probably actually a couple more weeks but um, <laughs> you know that's what part of this podcast series is about so we'll you gave us a lot of actually good insight and, and questions to explore in, in subsequent uh, episodes so I, wa I want to thank you for the, your time and uh, you got us a, a, a lot further down the river so to speak in terms of understanding <laughs> uh, understanding this issue so good good